0: High above the Nevada test site, that frequently bombed patch of secret space 50 miles north of Las Vegas, three tiny silver specks, nearly invisible jet interceptors, traced their way through the Nevada morning. 19,000 feet below, five volunteer Air Force officers and one involuntary government cameraman stood on the desert floor, waiting. Waiting excitedly, by all accounts, recording their experience and broadcasting back to the control point. Beside them was a hand-painted sign that said, Ground Zero, Population Five. At 7 a.m., an almost instantaneous white needle appeared ahead of the planes. This was an MB-1 Genie air-to-air missile with a nuclear tip traveling at 2,000 miles an hour. The delivery plane and the backup plane veered sharply to either side and at 20,000 feet Directly above the men on Yucca Flat, a two kiloton nuclear detonation lit up the sky. The men were wearing khakis, no goggles or protection of any kind. The whole exercise was designed to prove that air to air combat with nuclear missiles would be safe for ground troops. They stared, amazed. And confused for a moment by the lack of a mushroom cloud. The weapon was too high and too small, incidentally. They were giddy. They forgot about the shock wave which hit them all squarely on the heads. They laughed. They shook hands. They shook hands for a long, long time. Here, you can listen for yourself. 20 seconds. Eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two. There it goes, goes. the rocket is gone. We felt a heat pulse, a very bright light, a fireball, it is red, the sky looks black about it. It is boiling above us there. It is rapid Close uh, this color. There is the ground wave. It is over, folks. It will happen. The mounds are vibrating. It is tremendous, directly above our heads. It went. It went. good, as it is a huge firewall. The mounds are still oh, echoing right. through here. Worse than that a perfect, perfect shot? My only regrets right now are, this Colonel Bruce, that everybody couldn't have been out here at Ground Zero with us. Okay, Bodie. Have you ever wanted to stand at ground zero? When a nuclear bomb goes off? All that sunshine and no more student loans. Most people in a healthy state of mind probably don't, but that hasn't stopped a few from tempting fate, getting a little closer than they should. Here are a few stories from the Cold War Vault. The first candidate for this theme is probably a group of young physicists, recent graduates working on the Manhattan Project with Enrico Fermi at the University of Chicago. It was December 2nd, 1942, and the group had just finished building the world's first nuclear reactor. Strangely enough, under the bleachers of the football stadium, in a disused squash court. They had their reasons. The reactor was a pile of graphite blocks, and even in the worst case, it couldn't have exploded like an atomic bomb. No reactor really can. But it still would have been a really anxious experience there at the middle of something very new and very nuclear. In a nuclear reactor, a SCRAM, S-C-R-A-M, is a procedure by which the reactor can be suddenly shut down. Some nuclear power plants even have a button, a single point that says scram. And when it's pushed, control rods drop into the reactor and shut it down by absorbing neutrons. We know that the term in this usage originated on that day in 1942, but that's all we know. Its origin has become the stuff of legend, but each of its origin stories have the same moral. If something goes wrong, you really don't want to stick around. The longest running story, and probably the least true, is that Enrico Fermi himself positioned one of his team members, the newly minted PhD, Norman Hilbury on the balcony above the pile with an axe, ready to cut a rope to drop the control rods in case the mechanism failed. Hilbury dutifully attended the position with his well-sharpened axe through the experiment, and years later he remembered that he had never felt so foolish as he did on that day. But so was born SCRAM as an acronym for Safety Control Rod Axe Man, or something similar. In a larger-than-life, Paul Bunyan-esque version of the tale, Enrico Fermi demanded that the army provide him with a professional logger from the woods of Washington or Oregon to make sure the job would be done with precision. One was promptly requisitioned from the forest and imported to Chicago. His instructions were to cut the rope if Fermi yelled, Scram! When the befuddled woodsman asked the physicist what Scram meant. He replied, safety cut rope axe man. Implausibly. A truer tale was put forth by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission historian Tom Wellock. In this version, someone there on the day remembered that one of the team, Volney Wilson, Had been spotted assembling a panel with a large red button. When asked what it was for, Wilson said, Well, you push it if there's an emergency. Oh, well, then what do you do? Wilson said, You scram. As in, run. Fast and far from the University of Chicago football field. Whatever the origin, it tells the same story. You do not want to be around in the middle of a nuclear disaster. One more not quite Cold War Manhattan Project story. The night before the first atomic bomb test, July 15th, 1945, the weather on the Jornada del Muerto in New Mexico was stormy. The meteorology team, led by Jack Hubbard, postponed the 4 a.m. test and revised their estimate for good weather for between 5 and 6 a.m., General Leslie Groves, the director of the project, assured Hubbard that if the forecast was wrong, he and his team would be hung. J. Robert Oppenheimer, the scientific director, became increasingly nervous about the possibility of sabotage of the bomb, which hung inside a small shack perched on top of a 100-foot tower out on the floor of the desert. Oppenheimer asked, or more likely told, the 25-year-old Harvard-trained chemist Donald Hornig to go out and sit with the bomb overnight. And so he did. Miles from any other human being, Hornig sat in the partially open shack, reading a book of humorous essays counting the seconds between distant lightning flashes and thunder. As the evening went on, the lightning wasn't so distant and the wind and rain began to beat the walls. Hornig had actually invented the detonation system for the bomb, It was a series of 32 electrically-activated exploding bridge wires. He'd been to the tower already that day to make the final connections. These were all still connected, and as the lightning was striking around him, he wondered what would happen if the tower took a direct hit and the bomb went off. Of course, if that happened, he realized he would never know about it alone and miles from the nearest person, a hundred feet in the air, in a lightning storm, with an essay by Dorothy Parker babysitting a slowly swaying five-ton nuclear bomb. At a gathering of Manhattan Project scientists in 2005, Hornig recalled, It was a deeply philosophical experience. Here is another story from On Top of a Tower. During Operation Plumbob in 1957, a large open shot was planned. This was a public shot, at least for VIPs and assorted government officials. The test was named Diablo, and it was perched on a lofty 500-foot tower on Yucca Flat in Nevada. On the morning of the test, 2,000 marines huddled in trenches two miles from Ground Zero while hundreds of observers waited. Some of them were from Britain, Canada, Norway, Italy, Spain, and even China, Nationalist and therefore real China, not the communist mainland which the United States was still pretending didn't exist. As the countdown came closer to zero, these observers sealed the dark goggles over their eyes while the many reporters scattered over news knob at the control point turned away and covered their faces. Diablo was to be a 17-kiloton bomb, a little bigger than the bomb over Hiroshima. The loudspeakers counted down. Three, two, one. And nothing happened. No one spoke. And then the voices suddenly shouting to leave the goggles on. Imploring these dignitaries, VIPs, and visitors to leave the goggles on. The loudspeaker announced what everyone already knew. There has been a misfire. Hold your positions. For 20 minutes, there was tense waiting while the technicians determined that Diablo wouldn't go off accidentally. The Marines, the reporters, and all of the international observers were cleared from the area and a uniquely unenviable job fell to three men. These three had been what was called the Arming Party the last people to see the bomb before the test. Each had performed a specific function in the arming and now it was up to each of these men to undo the work of the previous day. At first light, they drove to the tower and began to climb the ladder. The 500-foot elevator had been removed before the test Forty-five minutes after reaching the bomb, they radioed back to the control point. A device disarmed. It turned out that a power line had come unplugged when a crane had removed the elevator. Perhaps slightly disgruntled, the three men waited at the top of the tower for the construction crew to bring the elevator back, and give them a ride down. In 1946, a strange fleet steamed for a tiny ring of islands in the Pacific called Bikini. This fleet was made up of old U.S. vessels some not so old, a few captured from the Japanese Imperial Navy and one German heavy cruiser. In all, the fleet and its attendant, staff, and equipment, called Joint Task Force 1, consisted of 42,000 men, 242 ships, 156 airplanes, 204 goats, 200 pigs, and 5,000 rats, and two atomic bombs. This would be a test of what might happen to a naval fleet if it were to be attacked by these new, relatively unknown weapons. The first was dropped on July 1st, 1946, It scraped the decks clean and damaged some exposed equipment. It started a few fires, but in general, the ships stood up to the bombing. In just a couple of days, the experiments were recovered and the target fleet was repositioned for the second test. That test, the fifth atomic detonation in history, was going to be something very different. At the center of the group of target ships, the bomb would be submerged 90 feet underwater, halfway to the bottom of Bikini Lagoon. The test was set for July twenty fifth, 1946. By the afternoon of the 24th, All of the men on the surrounding islands left there to set up cameras, monitoring equipment, and experiments were evacuated. And by that evening, only 13 support ships were left in Bikini Lagoon. These crews, I imagine, must have been at least a little uneasy, looking out at the ghost fleet, knowing that 90 feet below the waves, there was a bomb just hanging there, waiting. The test was set for 8.35 a.m. The last of the support ships began to steam away, and all of the teams that had been left on the ghost ships to set up last-minute sensors and tend to the test animals were evacuated. All but one. Three men aboard the doomed USS Gasconade, a Gilliam-class attack transport that had only been launched the previous year, discovered at around 5 a.m. that they had been left behind. They were less than half a mile from ground zero and three and a half hours from the detonation. There's no record of how these men were overlooked, so all we're left with is imagination. But I can't imagine it was anything less than absolute terror when they discovered that they had been left behind. There was, however, a prearranged signal. The men unfurled masses of bunting, long strands of colorful flags. They climbed up and filled the yard arms with the bunting, and between howling and waving their arms, I suspect they prayed. They were spotted at 5.30 a.m., and the USS Conserver came alongside to pick them up. They were the last men to leave Bikini Lagoon. A good thing too, because even though the Gasconade survived, it became so radioactive that it couldn't be approached for almost a week. Unlike the last occupants of the Gasconade, there were some who volunteered to be closer and closer to ground zero those five air force officers and one cameraman i mentioned at the start they were volunteers but the position was really very safe and they knew it they were three and a half miles away below that is a very small bomb just two kilotons now what if the job of calculating just how close you could be was placed squarely on your own shoulders. Would you trust your skills? Would you trust the judgment of the other officers who had signed on to stand next to you in your little trench? That's what happened several times during a set of experiments in the 1950s. It was called the Volunteer Observer Program, and outside of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, It was the closest that anyone had ever been to a nuclear detonation and survive. In 1953, during the Upshot Knothole testing series in Nevada, nine volunteer officers, four from the Army, four from the Navy, and one from the Air Force, positioned themselves in a trench 2,500 yards from ground zero during a 16 kiloton detonation. They had been given the task of calculating their own safe distance as part of a program to determine whether trained officers would be able to sensibly and safely position troops in a tactical nuclear situation. That is, when they let the nukes fly on the battlefield. Each officer was required to fill out a certificate before the test, presumably releasing the government from responsibility in the event of disaster. It read, I hereby certify that I have personally and individually computed the effects expected in an open trench located as far forward as blank yards from ground zero of Atomic Detonation Desert Rock 5 number blank. The validity of these computations is attested to by virtue of my having attended blank. I volunteer to participate in this exercise by positioning myself in the above mentioned trench. As part of the same program of volunteer observers, six army officers and six marine officers occupied a trench even closer to Ground Zero at 2,000 yards. At the moment of detonation, the trench was flooded with light and heat. Just over their heads, the thermal pulse was hot enough to ignite wood. When the shockwave hit, An opaque roof of screaming sand and debris darkened the trench, and one of the men was thrown to the ground. Another, who was holding a telephone and in communication with the control point to the rear, received an electrical shock that was reported as feeling like touching an exposed 110-volt wire, like sticking your finger in a light socket. In fact, the men on both ends of that telephone line felt it, and it became the first reported instance of anyone feeling the effects of the electromagnetic pulse, the EMP, a strange side effect of a nuclear bomb. Even though these volunteer officers had calculated the minimum safe distance and even rejected a trench at 1,500 yards, a pulse of 500 rentgens gens per hour was recorded for 15 to 20 seconds. Without getting into the specifics, longer-term exposure to that kind of radiation easily results in a very very nasty death. The limit for all personnel involved with these nuclear testing programs was between three and ten rent A little side note, I'm using the measurement units used at the time, and the ones that have come down to historians in documents. Different units are usually used for this kind of thing today. In any case, 500 Rentgens is the kind of radiation that can overcome a military man's stubbornness. The group scurried out of the trench and evacuated on foot before being picked up by a truck and taken to decontamination, which consisted of a thorough brushing with a household broom and a shower. There were other observers in trenches not so very far to the rear who had not volunteered. But they found themselves huddled together, slightly underground, just the same, listening to the same countdown to a nuclear detonation. <laughs> During these tests in Nevada in the 1950s, the Army and Marine Corps designated several series of exercises that involved troop maneuvers on the atomic battlefield. These were called Exercise Desert Rock, and the men who participated in them are today called Atomic Veterans. Desert Rock 1 through 7 took place during nuclear testing series from 1951 to 1957. The exercises involved troop entrenchment during the detonation and then battlefield maneuvers immediately after, in the shadow of the mushroom cloud. The most elaborate exercises such as Operation Razor involved an overland march from California to the Nevada test site, the atomic bombing of an imaginary army, and a very real armored assault on the newly broken enemy lines over contaminated ground. The most basic of these involved soldiers and marines sheltering in trenches, and then casually touring displays of bomb-damaged military hardware. I mentioned that these men were not volunteers. They were selected from a variety of units to act as seed observers in something the Department of Defense called the Troop Indoctrination Program. That is, they would witness the bomb and returned to their units to describe how they had survived and how it really wasn't so bad. Some then were selected randomly, some for their individual ability, and there is some anecdotal evidence that at least a few were selected as punishment. Wherever they had come from, All of them were exposed to some level of radiation from the bombs they witnessed. Since 1978, the Defense Nuclear Agency has maintained a nuclear testing personnel review that has attempted to document all radiation exposure for anyone involved with nuclear testing. Since President Bill Clinton launched an investigation into radiation exposure and military personnel in 1994, the atomic veterans have met with slow success in getting compensation for the health problems that they blame on their days at Camp Desert Rock Exercise Desert Rock 7 was carried out during shot hood of Operation Plumbob, the largest weapon ever to be detonated in the continental United States. It was 74 kilotons. One company of Marines advanced to 1,200 feet from ground zero before hitting the radiological safety limit of five rentgens per hour. This presents a potentially scary prospect. The Atomic Energy Commission had stated that the radiological safety limit should have been somewhere around 3,000. 200 feet, so this means that Echo Company either misjudged their distance from Ground Zero, or malfunctioning instruments allowed them to get much closer to Ground Zero than they should have been. One of those marines who participated in Desert Rock 7 was Jim Bunting, and his story makes me think that the second of those possibilities is more likely. Bunting died in December 2015, but before he did, he gave an interview in which he recounted his memories of that day in 1957. He said, We played war games right up to ground zero, where the sand had melted into glass. We could feel the crunching under our feet. Anyway." That was about the size of it. It was one hell of a firecracker. One of my favorite quotes from a soldier who witnessed an atomic bomb comes from a rare film interview aired as part of the Army's big picture television show in 1953. I'll let him speak for himself. Sergeant Gutierrez, you've seen a lot of action. Tell us just exactly how this thing looked to you. you. Think it's much of a weapon? I think it is, sir. Tell us about it. How'd it look? Well, my point of view, I think it's a terrific weapon, and I'd hate to be under it. Would you like to be any closer to it than you were? If I did, sir, I think I'd dig the hole a little deeper. In late January 1961, a major winter storm battered the eastern seaboard. It's often remembered as the Kennedy inaugural snowstorm. The nor'easter threatened the inauguration festivities and it left thousands of cars marooned or abandoned around Washington, DC. It was the turbulent death throes of that storm that struck a B-52 bomber over Goldsboro, North Carolina, on the 24th of January and tore it apart. The crew had been flying for nearly a day, preparing for Operation Chrome Dome, a strategic air command initiative that would have B-52 bombers flying 24-hour missions, permanently airborne and ready to cross the border into the Soviet Union, fully armed with nuclear weapons. On this particular night, the plane carried two Mark 39 bombs, three and a half ton thermonuclear weapons capable of a 3.8 megaton yield. It was for realism in training, I suppose. After an aborted refueling attempt that night, the crew discovered a severe fuel leak in the right wing. As the leak got worse and they were tossed around in the turbulence, the plane became more difficult to control. As they descended toward the airfield through 10,000 feet, the plane pulled harder and harder to starboard as the wing disintegrated. By 9,000 feet, it was torn completely off, and the plane tumbled earthward. The pilot gave the order to eject. Five men parachuted to the ground and survived. One was impaled on the high branches of a tree and died. Two others were killed in the crash. As the plane broke up and wires twisted and tore, Electrical surges and shorts were sent to the arming mechanisms of the two hydrogen bombs in the bay. The bombs were jettisoned between 1,000 and 2,000 feet. On the ground, the night was silent. Most were sleeping, some were not. In a small, white farmhouse occupied by Buck and Ellen Tyndall the rooms suddenly went red. Light flooded the house as the fireball raged and spun to the ground. The fuselage crashed a few hundred feet from the Tyndall's front door across Big Daddy's Road. The rest of the plane was scattered over two square miles. Fire crews failed to quell the flames with water, and the inferno raged until the Air Force arrived with the appropriate foam fire retardant. At one end of the debris field, one of the hydrogen bombs was found, standing upright on its nose. Nearly undamaged, its 100-foot-wide parachute hung up in a tree. The second had a rougher ride. Its three and a half tons struck the ground at 700 miles an hour, driving it through the soft mud to a depth later estimated at nearly 200 feet. Buck and Ellen Tyndall watched the proceedings for the next five months as experts from the Air Force tried and failed to extract the weapon from the mud. Over time, most, but not all, of the bomb was recovered and analyzed. The Mark 39 bomb had four fail-safe switches. Each of these needed to be activated to allow the bomb to detonate. These included electromechanical safing switches and a trajectory arming sensor that would confirm that the bomb was actually falling. In turn, the violent breakup of the plane had sent false signals to each, activating them. In 2013, documents relating to the accident were finally declassified. Of those four interlocking safety mechanisms designed to prevent an accidental thermonuclear detonation, all but one electromechanical switch had failed. That switch, a simple stepper motor designed to be turned when a 28-volt current was sent to it from the plane, was the only thing left between a safe and an armed thermonuclear weapon descending on the countryside of North Carolina. Buck and Ellen Tyndall nearly found themselves in the middle of the Goldsboro, North Carolina thermonuclear catastrophe of 1961, about 1,000 feet from ground zero. This episode was written and produced by Dr. D.J. Kinney. That's me. This week's music by Floating Spirits and Kai Engel. Follow the Vault on Facebook and Twitter at Cold War Vault and have a look at the website for show notes and links to all the stories from this week at ColdWarvault.com. Until next time, greetings from Ground Zero.